We are in the Gospel of Mark, as you know, chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be, uh, our passage this morning is going to be beginning in verse 21. We'll be 21 through 28. But I want to back up a little bit and I want to read beginning in verse 14 of chapter 1 to provide a little context for us. Beginning in verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the, the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, What have you do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. Pray with me. Jesus, we need you this morning. We cannot, I cannot utter a word of any value unless it comes from you. Father, I trust that the words I have here are words that you want me to speak. But if there's something here that does not need to be said or you don't want to be said, Lord, would you please strike it from my heart? But I pray that the words that you do desire for me to contribute today, God, would fall on fertile ground, Lord, the fertile ground of my heart and those here and those that will hear. Father, your word has power and the word made flesh is powerful. Jesus, our Savior, we're thankful for that first and foremost. For without him, life would have no meaning. We're grateful. Lord, be with us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is in this passage that I read, beginning in verse 14, an undeniable, urgent cadence to the gospel of Mark. You could hear it as, as I read beginning in that, that verse. You could hear that quick paced cadence and it's, it's tipped off by the word immediately, certainly, that we see throughout the, the gospel of Mark. But I also think you see it just in the tension that exists in the narrative structure of Mark. We read today how Jesus began proclaiming the kingdom of God and he called all to repent and believe the gospel. And then we see him to begin calling his disciples. 
And upon calling these, these four fishermen to follow him, he begins to get the very, to the very heart of the matter of what he's about here in the Gospel of Mark, the very heart of the work that he came to do. And over the next several weeks, over the next several passages that we're going to read here in Mark, we're going to see Jesus barnstorming Galilee in a sense. He starts to, to, to display a kind of authority that's never been seen before or since. He teaches with authority. Not only does he teach with authority, he has authority over spirits and he has authority over flesh. He heals the sick and he heals leopards. And as we'll see later on, he actually has the authority to forgive sin. So there's a lot happening in this passage this morning. It's the, the Sabbath beginning in verses 21. It's, it's the Sabbath and Jesus and, and his four buddies would be like good Jewish men. They'd be coming into the town and they'd be looking to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And so that's where they find themselves. And as we've learned before, the synagogue is a place, it's an assembly hall where the Torah is read, the law the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, it's read and it's explained by a, a scribe or a rabbi that would be, would be discussing and talking and interpreting the law. Now, the, the right or the privilege to teach in the synagogue would have been controlled by the leaders of that synagogue. So Jesus didn't just show up as Jesus and kick the door down and say, okay, I'm here, boys. It's time for me to teach. Most likely, his, his reputation would have, been, would have preceded him and he would have been invited or at least allowed to come and to teach. And they would have said, Rabbi, come and teach us. And so he did. And it blew him away. It astonished them. They were listening and they were hearing something that they have never heard before in a way that they have never heard before. Mark doesn't tell us though what the content was. He doesn't tell us the content of the teaching that astonished them because the content isn't really important. The reason that it astonished them was because they were hearing something that had authority and they had never heard authority like this before because it came from Jesus. And that shouldn't surprise us. When we consider who Jesus is, the word made flesh, right? God incarnate, picking up the law, and reading the word was the word. That had to blow him away. He was the word made flesh, teaching them the word. They didn't catch that, but they caught it because they knew that, that there was something different. There was an authoritative teaching that was being given to them. When they came to the synagogue, what they were used to was a very learned man a very intelligent man, a rabbi or a scribe who would, who would be very smart and they would read and they would comment on the law. They would be teaching them how to be Jews, right, in the culture, in that current culture. They were used to someone that knew a lot about God, but what they were hearing was a man who knew God because he was God. And they were blown away by that. In the Gospel of Mark, we learned that the person of Jesus is always more important than the subject of his teaching. Because if we want to know the essence of the gospel, Jesus, his person and his work is the essence of the gospel. So we have this authoritative teaching from this guest preacher that, that leaves the hearers in the synagogue thunderstruck. And immediately upon hearing the word of God, demons began to become restless. 
a demon inhabiting a man in the synagogue cries out to Jesus and he appeals both to his humanity and to his deity, which is interesting to me. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus' authority is directly challenged here. Directly and suddenly challenged. And there had to be tension in the room, right? I don't know if it was common practice for a demon to be present in the synagogue, but even if, there, even if, there, if that was common, I got to believe that there was some tension in the room that there was this demon-possessed person there. And then on top of that, they had to be thinking or saying to each other, did you hear what the demon just called this guy? He called him the Holy One of God. Tension existed, but before they would have a chance to even discuss it, assuming they heard all of this, I'm assuming that they did, before they even had a chance to discuss that, Jesus rebukes the demon and he says, be silent and come out of him. And with those authoritative words of Jesus, we read that the demon convulsed loudly, cried out and came out of the man. And once again, they were amazed And they said, what is going on here? He commands even the demons and they obey. And that ends the account. And we read that his reputation and his fame spread throughout the region of Galilee. It's a pretty straightforward passage. It's a dramatic passage, but it's pretty straightforward. And there are a number of things that we can pick out that would be beneficial, that would be intriguing and powerful for us but there are a couple of things that I want to point out for us today. First is the, the unmistakable authority of Jesus. We, we see it very, very clearly in this passage. That's the first thing. The second thing is linked to that, and that's this cosmic reality of the unseen. Two things I think we see in here is the unmistakable authority of Jesus and the cosmic reality of the unseen. We see the interplay between these two. And to be honest with you, and I've told a couple of you this morning, I've, I've been struggling with, with how to communicate this passage. How do, we, how do we live in light of this passage today? What does this passage have to say to us today? Because it's relevant to us today, right? This is the word of God. It, it crosses cultures. It's transcultural. So it, it applied to the hearers of that day, but it applies to us as well. And I, and I, I, I wrestled with what this, what this had for us today. It, it seems to me that, that God allows some believers the ability to experience the mystery of the supernatural, right? We've, we've probably all, maybe we know some people now or we've known some people in the past, maybe you're one of them that experience this mystery of the supernatural. And personally, I've thought to myself, well, this is, this is a, a gift that's been given to them by God, right? But is that true? Is it really a gift? Is it an issue of giftedness or is it an issue of availability? There's a big difference there. Because when I look at scripture, I don't find the ability to experience the supernatural as a fruit of the spirit. I don't find it as a, as a spiritual gift. In fact, Jesus says in John 14, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. And of course, he would be giving us his spirit. And so Jesus seems to believe that whoever believes in him will do works just as great, if not greater than he does. And so I think we as believers can all experience the supernatural. 
But I think it's typically done through relationships. And here's why. Because it's in close relationships where we share the burdens of life. It's in close relationships with one another that the gospel is applied. And there's nothing more supernatural about gospel application resulting in gospel transformation. That is supernatural. That is found through relationships. When, when Jesus shows up, usually something radical happens. That's as true of the unseen as it is in the human heart, right? That's as true in the unseen as, as it is in the human heart. But here's, as we dig into this passage, what we have to understand. That for Jesus's first public appearance in ministry in Mark, he chooses an encounter in the synagogue of Capernaum in which the kingdom of God is going head to head with an unseen but ultimate opponent, Satan. That's the stage. The first thing we see Jesus doing in his public appearance is taking on the power structure of evil. That's pretty dramatic. It's pretty profound. Mark doesn't talk about the the genealogy of Jesus as Matthew does. He doesn't go into great detail about, about about his birth as Luke does. He chooses this dramatic, specific encounter in a synagogue where the authority where we see the authority of Jesus and its effect on people. And we see the authority of Jesus and its effect on the unseen, in this case, on demons. And Mark does this because this is the reason he came. He didn't come to show us miracles. He didn't come to wow us with miracles. He came in to usher the kingdom of God and put the works of the devil to death. That's why he came. That's what Mark is describing. And that's what I want to talk about first is this cosmic reality of the unseen. So Thanksgiving is over. I hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving. It's a a time of year where we, hopefully, we experience encouragement and life with family. I know for some people, it's it's a difficult time during the holidays because of past experiences. And I hope and pray that's not true for you. But Thanksgiving is over by any measure we are officially in the Christmas season. Advent begins next Sunday. And so it is a wonderful time of the year, as, as Andy Williams says. It's, it's a wonderful time of the year, right? And it's a, it can be a very warm and, and cozy and fuzzy feeling time of the year for us, right? We like Christmas songs, Christmas carols. We drink eggnog. Some in this room will probably have a mimosa on Christmas morning. I'm not mentioning any names on that. But we celebrate the newborn babe, right? We celebrate the fact that this, this teenage virgin gave birth to this tiny baby in a stable in Bethlehem and, and we get all cuddly and, and cozy and we put our coats and our scarves and our hats on and we love the snow and we love the movies and that's all good and proper. Those are gifts. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to create warm and fuzzy feelings in us or compel us to put lights on our houses and our evergreen trees. It's not why he came. First John 3 says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Put that on your next Christmas card that you send out. <laughs> the angels appeared to the shepherds on the hillside in Bethlehem and they said, don't fear me because I have good news. Fear the one lying in the manger because that little baby came to conquer Satan's sin and death. 
once and for all. Demons will fear that child. Don't fear me. I have good news. That's the good news. He came to conquer Satan. I don't believe that we have to read in Mark chapter 1 to see demons shuddering before the Son of God. I think Jesus, when he uttered his very first cry as a human yet divine baby, demons cowered. In that moment, demons cowered because that's why he came. The reason the heavenly host lit up the sky and said glory to God in the highest is because of that reason. Because the little Christ child came to conquer Satan. In Mark, Jesus' casting out of demons is an undeniable sign that the kingdom of God has come and Satan's realm is being routed. So these aren't routine miracles. They represent the ultimate and inevitable submission of this world to the power and the reign of God, both in the cosmic unseen and in the human heart. This is a message the original hearers needed to hear. Mark doesn't spend the detail of the birth of Jesus. He rapidly moves, as you notice in Mark, from his baptism to his wilderness days to proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here and that darkness will be dispelled. In in all of these accounts so far, Mark doesn't go into great detail. In this one, he begins to go into some detail. Now, remember, the original recipients of this letter lived in the the early to mid-60s of the first century some 30 years after Jesus would have, would, have been, would have been crucified. And they were experiencing persecution. And they were experiencing their leaders, the apostles, being martyred. And so they were in the thick of it. And they needed to hear this message. They needed, as Christians who were subjected to unspeakable evil in their day, they needed to hear a message. And it wasn't a message of quiet encouragement that they needed. They needed a message of urgent hope because of what they were involved in at the time. They needed to know that they were not battling against flesh and blood. No matter how bad the emperor may have been, or no matter how bad the persecution may have been against them, they needed to know that their battle was against something bigger. It was against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And you're thinking, where's the hope in that? If that's what they're communicating to these people that are being persecuted, where is the hope in that? Well, they also needed to hear and be reminded that the enemy, the solution to that enemy was much bigger. The conqueror of that enemy was Jesus, and he came to dispel the darkness. He said the kingdom is at hand, and that's what Mark is reminding them. And what that meant is that God is restoring all things. If you're a believer this morning... If you trust in Jesus, you've experienced someone coming to life in Christ. If, if even just yourself, you've experienced someone coming to life in Christ, most likely you've experienced someone else in your life that has come alive in Jesus Christ. And it's a profound and it's a beautiful thing. And it's a gift of God. And it's evidence that the kingdom of God is at hand. You are a part of that kingdom if you are a believer in Jesus. God wants to see the darkness dispelled and he wants to use you personally. You are in a sense, in a very real sense, the embodiment of the kingdom of God. 
You see, God is a restorer of all things and he invites us into that reality. And it's a cosmic unseen reality to most of us. But I don't think it has to be. Of that, I'm convinced. This is an otherworldly reality. We're dealing with something that is outside of ourselves, otherworldly. In the Gospel of Mark, we see four specific interactions with demons, where Jesus casts out the demons. But we also read that it's customary, because it says also that Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, preaching and casting out demons and healing the sick. So there's this supernatural, cosmic restoration that's taking place when Jesus shows up. Let me ask you a question. Isn't there something inside of you that longs to see that? Isn't there something deep inside of you that wants to see the wholeness of humanity? That wants to see the restoration of how things were meant to be by God? I mean, good grief, look at the news. It seems like every day something is coming out that just shows the evil and the sinfulness of man. And it seems to be getting uglier and uglier and uglier. And I'm afraid we're becoming desensitized to that. As Jesus began his public ministry, it was evident that something was different. What was prophesied for thousands of years, incidentally, we see a stark difference between what Jacob read in Isaiah 53 and Jesus casting out demons. What the demons didn't know was that the demon caster outer, that's not not the word I wanted to use, but the one who was casting out demons was also the one who would suffer and die with his mouth closed. And Jesus said, be quiet. Because I didn't come here just to do miracles. I came to conquer Satan. And that ultimately will be cried out on a cross. And I will say it is finished. There's a stark difference between Isaiah 53 and what we read here in Mark. And I think that's something we need to understand. But as Jesus begins his ministry, it's evident there's a difference. And what has been prophesied for thousands of years has finally come to pass. And there began to be immediate examples of this. People would leave their jobs. The sick were being healed. Demons were cast out. Sins were forgiven and lives were transformed. Don't you desire to see that? Don't you desire to see the kingdom of God? Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied with the way things are now in the world, in our country, in your life, in your heart? Are you satisfied with that? Don't we want to see restoration taking place? I want to see that. The message of Mark hits the hearts and the minds of the early persecuted church, I think is a balm to a wound because they were in the thick of battle. They were physically being persecuted. Their leaders were being martyred and they were in contact with the harsh realities of a sin-sick, disease-ridden world. When they heard this, I believe they thought, this is worth it. This is worth it because the kingdom of God is at hand and we need to press on and press in to Christ because he has already conquered the enemy and he is restoring all things. And they were encouraged that they were a part of that. They were on the cusp of something that would continue on for thousands and thousands of years that we are involved in today. 
That's how I think that passage hit their ears. How does it affect you? Think about that for just a second. How does it affect you when you hear Jesus teaching with this authority? How does it affect you when you hear that he cast out demons? Let me be honest. When I read this, I think, wow, Jesus speaks with authority. I wish I could respond that way and be amazed at the authority of Jesus' teaching when I read it every morning. I read verse 25 and I think, wow, pretty cool. Jesus cast out a demon. How, How amazing would that be to see and experience someone actually casting out a demon? Because I think it happens. By the word of God, I think demons are still cast out I hear stories of that. I believe that it probably happens, but I've never experienced that. But that's what I think when I read this passage. Sadly, that's me. Is that you? Folks, God is moving and God is working to restore all things to himself. And he's doing that work all around us, all around us. Sometimes we see it and sometimes we don't. But he invites us in to participate in that. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you're part of the kingdom of God, as we've said. And there are people in your life that need to experience the kingdom of God because if it wasn't for you in their lives, they wouldn't experience the kingdom of God outside of God saving them. And he very well may be using you as an ambassador or a minister of reconciliation to not just show them the kingdom of God, but to invite them into it. God may be working, God is working. But what's stopping us from experiencing this kind of kingdom restoration? What gets in the way? What's blocking our ability to see and experience this cosmic reality of the unseen? Is it because God hasn't gifted us in some special way? Or is it because we resist and we're not available to be used by him? Let me read you an excerpt as I was studying for this that I read that I think is very thought-provoking. An excerpt from a commentary on Mark chapter 1. And, and the commentator says, The miracles in this section of Mark, so these and the ones that are, that are ensuing, uh, reveal that Jesus is not someone who is aloof, inaccessible, or detached. Our culture today does not touch, and many people live in isolation from others. We seal ourselves off from one another with our privacy fences and retreat to the inner sanctum of the family room. The church is sometimes in danger of doing the same by retreating to its members only, fully equipped family life center. Clearly, this is not a red tree person, which becomes a safe cocoon from contact with the harsh realities of a diseased, ridden, sin-sick world. We want others quarantined from us so that they will not infect us. But those who bear the name of Christ need to minister in the name of their Lord to those who are the untouchables in our society. I read this for two reasons. One is because this probably was not the circumstance of the early church going out on a limb, probably not what they were involved in, right? They weren't retreating to their family life centers. But it might, be, it might be us. And I think we forget that the kingdom restoration is accomplished and made evident when we invest in relationships. My question is, are we available for that? 
I've been reading a lot of, of the writings of A.W. Tozer lately. And A.W. Tozer says that if we truly want to follow God, and we got to remember this whole section begins with Jesus saying, follow me, right? We are to follow this person of Jesus Christ. So Tozer says, if we truly want to follow God, we must seek to be otherworldly. Think about it this way. When, when, we, when we die, or excuse me, when, when we are saved, rather, our dead soul comes to life, right? Right? The darkness is abated and light comes in. Our dead soul comes to life in Christ. We are laying on the bottom of the ocean, incapable of responding. Our lungs are filled with water. We are dead. We cannot and will not and don't want to respond. But when God breathes new life into our lungs, we are given then the ability to respond to the saving grace of Jesus. Tozer goes on to say, the soul then has eyes with which to see and hear. Feeble they may be from long disuse, but by the life-giving touch of Christ, they are now alive and capable of sharpest sight and most sensitive hearing. So when the soul is awakened, when the soul is made alive by the blood of Christ, feeble as it may be from disuse, the life-giving touch of Jesus makes us capable to see sharply and to hear in very sensitive ways. Believer, how is your spiritual eyesight? How, is your, how in tune is your soul to the hearing of what God is doing all around you? For Tozer, it hinges on something that he says, and he says, obedience to the word of Christ brings inward revelation of God or our ability to see otherworldly. For him, for A.W. Tozer, it was obedience to the word of Christ. He didn't say it hinged on giftedness. He didn't say it hinged on availability. He said it hinged on obedience. What are we to be obedient to as a believer? But the words of Christ. We are to be obedient to the clear and unmistakable authority of Jesus in our life. Obedience to that authority brings inward revelation, otherworldly sight, otherworldly hearing. John 14, Jesus says that if you keep my commandments, you love me and my father loves you. And if my father loves you, Jesus says, I will manifest myself to you. What does the word manifest mean? It means to make visible. How does Jesus make himself visible to us? but through other people. We don't see hologram, holograms of Jesus popping up around us. We see Jesus in one another. We're called to follow Jesus and a vital part of following Jesus is living in the light. First John 1, 5 through 7 says, this is the message that we have heard from him and we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we proclaim with our lips that we have been saved by the blood of the lamb, and yet we walk in darkness and we hold everything in our life closed in so tightly that no one knows about it, something's mis- something is misfiring. We're engaged in deception because most likely we're walking around saying, I'm good, everything's fine, when it's not. Or if we proclaim with our lips that we're saved by the blood of the lamb and we're unavailable to the people that are around us who don't know God, something is certainly misfiring. This is something that we're all guilty of. And I think it's emblematic I think in some ways it's emblematic of the church on the whole. And I think it's critically an issue in the West County churches, not West County church, but the churches out in West County because of the culture we live in. I think we, we get lulled to a sense of false security. I think what God wants us here at Red Tree Church to see in this passage is that our inability to see and think otherworldly is linked to our unwillingness to submit to the authority of the word of God and walk in true fellowship with God and others. I also think that our unavailable and our unavailability and unwillingness to minister to the untouchables in your world is a symptom of that. Who are the untouchables in your world? I know who mine are. Who are they for you? If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That word fellowship in in my context, in my life, has meant sharing a meal with my gospel community once a month. We have fellowship, we eat a meal. That's not what that means. The word fellowship is a familiar Greek word to you, koinonia. It means to participate or to share deeply, not just a meal, not just physical possessions, but our very lives. Deep, personal fellowship where the the deep things of our heart that are ugly and sinful are brought out and confessed. A close bond should exist with one another where the ugliness of this sin is revealed and the glory of the gospel is of Jesus Christ is applied. When koinonia is actually happening, when that type of fellowship is actually happening, the clear and unmistakable authority of Jesus Christ is evident in our life. And when the clear and unmistakable evident of of Jesus's authority in us, then Jesus will manifest himself to us and those around us. And we'll see it in one another and we will experience the realm of the supernatural in some profound ways for some of us. It's called the aroma of Christ. And I don't think that aroma of Christ is something that is just experienced by our sense of smell. I think that aroma of Christ can also be seen and be felt. I think it can be heard, but whatever it is, it will be unmistakable. God is inviting us into a reality that's like no other. We seem to want to exist on on a level where we can see and we can experience everything in front of us and around us and behind us. And we can make commentary and we can make criticism or we can fix this or we can fix that or we can apply gospel-like language. 
But God is inviting us into a reality like no other, and it's a cosmic reality of the unseen, and we don't have to wait for the future reality of heaven to happen in order for us to to experience that. We need to walk in light with one another as he is the light. And this isn't something that the world is used to. This isn't something I think a lot of our churches are used to. And this isn't something that West County, I think, is used to. But that's what we're called to. There is a realm of the unseen that is around us. God is doing profoundly amazing things across the world that we do read about, and they are happening. But you don't have to have a special gift to experience those things. You have to be saved by Jesus. You have to be willing to surrender your will to Christ, to live in the deep relationships that he has given you, investing being willing to talk about what does the gospel have to say about this sin in our lives? How is Jesus real in this scenario? And then we see him work and transform a heart. We see him transform a dead life, come to light, come to life and live in the light. That is supernatural. There is a part of that we can experience. I think we have tunnel vision. And I think we just look at our own lives. We look at our own families. We look at our own agendas. We look at our own work, good things, fruitful things, gifts of God. Believer, that's not why he came. He came to dispel the darkness. And he wants to use us to dispel that darkness. Some of you in very specific ways, but all of us in some way, through relationships, are you available are you, are you a saved believer that understands God actually wants to use you? That you are a part of the kingdom come if you're a believer. You are a part of that kingdom and there are people in your lives that desperately need to see that kingdom because for some of them, you're the only representation of that kingdom and God wants to use you in their lives. 